Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. It's great to worship with you all and uh, continuing on in our series in Ephesians where all God's promises are yes and amen. He says you are chosen, you are adopted, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are an inheritance and you receive an inheritance. All of those promises are yes and amen. So that was wonderful to start like that. Let's pray together before we come to the message. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for all that you have done for us through your Son, And Father, sometimes I I feel as though we don't fully grasp the full weight of what was accomplished. But I am so grateful for this letter to the Ephesians, which gives us an insight into your love and your grace. It gives us an insight into who we have become as new creations in Christ. And I pray, Holy Spirit, as we study the scripture, that our hearts would be renewed and transformed, that our minds would come alive with the knowledge of your truth and your love. And I pray, as I always pray every, every Sunday, that the message is not simply informative, but transformative, that we carry it with us into our everyday lives. And I ask that you would accomplish this by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you were with us a few weeks ago on Easter Sunday, you'll know that we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, of course, right? And, and as we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, we declared that Jesus was victorious over three enemies. Jesus is victorious over sin, over death, over Satan. And we rejoiced on that day because through Christ, united in him, we are also victorious over those three enemies. We too have victory over sin, death, and Satan. Now, the Apostle Paul, in his praise of God's goodness, in his vast awe of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, mentions this victory we have in Christ using the words redemption and forgiveness. So where we're at is we're still in Ephesians chapter 1, just a few verses down. Paul is continuing to praise God. He's praising God for the blessings that we have been given in Christ. And so he writes this in verse 7. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. The whole sermon is going to be here. I was going to do verses 7 through 10, but then I was like, there's too much here in verse 7. So we're just going to sit here in verse 7. But let's understand the depth of redemption. To understand the full depth of redemption and forgiveness, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, or maybe shortly after the beginning, to the time when these three enemies, sin, death, and Satan, gained some measure of dominion over humanity. 
And the story is a famous story. Adam and Eve. Eve believes the lie of the serpent, and Adam outright disobeys the command of God. And Eve believes, the the serpent, that, that God's not telling them the whole truth about eating from the tree of good and evil. God said, if you eat from the tree, you would die. But the serpent comes along and says, well, you're not actually going to die. You're actually going to live, and you're going to have greater knowledge. Now, let's just pause here. The serpent is a mysterious and, and somewhat surprising character to appear in, in the Garden of Eden, right? It's an animal. It's, it's clearly dangerous. But, you know, the question is, is it just a snake? Because you're like, wait, now there's a talking snake. Where did it come from? Is it really just a snake that talks? Like, what is actually going on in here? So I'm going to do a little deep dive, not a huge deep dive, just a little bit um, about the identity of the serpent pulling from the Bible project. And we could do a really deep dive on this, but I'm just going to give you the basics. So the snake is identified as a beast of the field, but it's also identified as being exceptional, exceptional among the beasts. This creature is presented as having knowledge of God's decisions. The snake pretends to be clearing up a miscommunication that God had with the humans, right? He says, hey, if you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're not actually going to die. In fact, you're going to become like the Elohim, that is, like the spiritual beings. So what is the snake, and how in the world would it possibly know this? Right? How does it know this? It's like it has insider knowledge of God's decision-making. And so what we are to intuit from the text is that this is not an ordinary snake. The snake is representing something evil and sinister, some spiritual power that's enticing humans to give up their cooperative rule with God and instead seize the opportunity to rule on their own terms with their own knowledge of good and evil. And so the humans, instead of exercising authority over this beast, the humans are lured into self-destruction by this beast, which is also some sort of spiritual being. So you have this, what you're really tracking here is an inversion from the ideal of Genesis 1. Because in Genesis 1, humans are supposed to rule and steward creation in, in cooperation with God. Humans are created by God to look after his good creation. In full relationship with God, we are to be good caretakers of all creation, including the beasts and the animals. But now you have a beast that's ruling over the humans. And giving in to the serpent turns us into beasts. We lose a measure of our humanity and instead become heirs of the snake. And once the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is eaten, just disobeying directly God's one command, the nature of all creation changes. And three powers now hold humanity captive. Sin, death, and Satan. The Apostle John will later state this. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's 1 John 5.19, which is a really kind of stops you in your tracks verse. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. We, so after the fall of humanity, after, after this uh, grievous thing is done we now start to see this beastly pull of sin from that point on. Think about the very first murder recorded in Scripture. You have two brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And Cain is angry at his brother Abel. And the Lord tells Cain, before he kills his brother, the Lord says to Cain, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And Cain kills his brother because sin is crouching at his door, and he cannot overcome it. And the word picture that the the Lord uses here is so interesting, right? Sin is crouching at your door as if it's about to pounce. It's sort of given this sort of animal-like, beastly quality. It's, it's, It's crouching. It's ready to pounce. It's ready to devour you. And sin 
we see then causes us to be less than the humans we were meant to be. Sin ultimately dehumanizes us. And that is why humans can do such horrific and beastly in the full meaning of that word, things to one another and to themselves, which is ultimately rebellion against God because he never designed us to live being ruled by these desires which are destructive to us and destructive to others. And even sin that we might not consider all that bad is still destructive and ultimately dehumanizing. For example, gossip is not nearly as bad as murder. I'd rather someone gossip about me than murder me, right? So we can say, okay, clearly we can differentiate here. But gossip is still harmful. It's still destructive. It can still kill relationships and genuine connections, Right? If you've ever been uh, the person being gossiped about, you know how difficult it is then to renew that relationship. If you find out that someone was talking about you behind your back, saying uh, slanderous or, or untrue or slightly true things about you or breaking your confidence, that kills the relationship. It's so difficult then to, to regain that relationship. And so ultimately, even though gossip we would say is not as bad as murder, it still dehumanizes you. Because you were never meant to live in such a way that you would talk about someone behind their back to make yourself look or feel better. That's not the way humans were designed to to be, ultimately. So sin is dehumanizing. Sin makes us less than what we are intended to be, and it crouches at the door. Sin holds us captive, and we give into it, all of us, to varying degrees. Again, not everyone's murdering their brother. But I guarantee you, you've done other things that are dehumanizing to you, like gossip. And it happens more often than we would like to admit. I was at a coffee shop and I was talking with someone about uh, church planting and I made a disparaging comment about a church plant. It was unnecessary. It wasn't productive to the conversation. It just sort of came out. And it was afterwards I thought, oh, I really shouldn't have said that. That was not, what value was there in that? I just tore someone down for no, no apparent reason. So we have this problem, right? There's this sin that crouches at our door and as much as we try and control it and overcome it, uh, we can't. Without God's intervention in our lives, we do give sin free reign in our lives, and it rules over us. Jesus says in John 8, 34, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And every human that is born will fall under the power of sin, death, and Satan. To varying degrees, our sinfulness will come out. And unless God intervenes, that's our fallen state. And so it becomes clear then that we cannot control this sin that crouches at our door. It it will gain dominance over us in some way. And so humanity needs a rescuer. We need a redeemer. We need one who can have the victory over power, uh, the victory over the power of sin, death, and Satan. And so, of course, we know the rescuer, the savior, is Jesus, son of God. The apostle John writes this, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And the Apostle Paul describes a situation like this. For God rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Very similar language to what we're reading in Ephesians, right, in Colossians. But I love the first part. God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. We see then that humanity really has two powerful enemies. One enemy is ourselves. We are our own enemy. It's our own sinful hearts and actions which condemn us. We hurt ourselves, we hurt others, and in so doing, we rebel against God. Sin desires to control us, and we're simply not strong enough to resist its pull. Again, everyone's got their own pull into sin. You might be able to resist one part of it and give in to another part of it. But the the point being, we cannot resist 
the lure of sin. The other enemy that we have, the other powerful enemy, is a spiritual being named Satan and his followers who seek to destroy humanity by holding us captive in spiritual darkness. And the truth that we don't want to accept but that Scripture tells us is true is that Satan has more control and more power in this world than we would often like to think. Satan holds us captive because our hearts are sinful and rebellious towards God. We're held captive by this great enemy who wants to see all of God's good creation destroyed. Scripture states it like this, that Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message of the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So because our hearts are naturally rebellious, because we inhabit a world that is under the influence of Satan, we begin to follow the devil. Because we are captives and prisoners held by Satan in this domain of darkness. Satan seeks to keep humanity's eyes blind to the truth. And he seeks to wrap us in spiritual darkness. And this means without Jesus in our life, we often follow Satan, often without even knowing that we are. Right? I'm not saying that everyone out there is a Satanist. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying everyone out there worships Satan. I'm saying without even knowing that we are doing so, we follow Satan. Every time we dehumanize ourselves, every time we give in to something that pulls another down, that's harmful to us, harmful to others, Every time we chase a desire that's ultimately not going to fulfill, we are actually following, we're following evil. Scripture states this in Ephesians 2, 2. We're going to get there in a few weeks. But you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And so you can see the two powerful enemies laid out by Scripture. Yes, we have our own struggle with sin that crouches at our door, and yet we also have this enemy that holds us captive who is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey. And so perhaps the best way to understand the spiritual reality that Scripture paints for us is to see it as something like Stockholm Syndrome. So Stockholm Syndrome occurs when a kidnapped person or group of people begin to identify with the person or group that captured them. And eventually they might even begin to work with their captor or captors. Now, this is usually due to intense trauma, the violence, the manipulation, the seeming impossibility of escape. It's more like a trauma bonding thing is, is really what's happening there. So you just, you, you are so, your mind becomes uh, almost broken because of the violence, the trauma, the, the impossibility of escape, the constant manipulation. And so Stockholm Syndrome is not simply someone deciding their captors are really nice people. It's a mind that simply becomes confused and disordered due to the trauma and, and kind of the, I can't believe I'm in this situation. Perhaps the best example of this is Patty Hearst, who at the age of 19 was captured by a terrorist group called the Symbionese Liberation Army, the SLA. And on April 3rd, Hearst announced on an audio tape that she had joined the SLA. She changed her name to Tanya. On April 15th, she was photographed holding a rifle while robbing a bank in San Francisco and was eventually arrested. Now, before Patty got to that point where she was joining in on a bank robbery with this terrorist group, before all this, Patty had been held captive for a week. She had been kidnapped, held captive for a week in a closet, blindfolded, not allowed to look or see anything, only allowed out of the closet to eat a very little food. She had been subject every day and night to the lies and manipulation of her captors and eventually became fully under their influence to the point of following their instructions. She was convinced she would never be free, and her options were either die or join the SLA. 
Now, Patty was sentenced to decades in prison because it looked on videotape as though she was doing this of her own volition. She also kidnapped some other people and, and engaged in some other crimes. So she was sentenced, I think the original sentence they wanted was 35 years. And she was sentenced, I think it was supposed to be seven years. But President Jimmy Carter, at the end of his term, understanding the complexities of what she had gone through, had her released after 22 months. And Bill Clinton fully pardoned her of all crimes in 2001. But when it comes to spiritual realities, Scripture sort of portrays it like this, that humans are blinded, confused, captives and prisoners to sin, death, and Satan. And so we need someone who can rescue us. We need someone who can defeat the powers that are against us. We couldn't in our own strength do it. We can't resist the lure of sin. We can't resist the temptations of the evil one. And we don't even know what good is, for we are being held captive in darkness. And so Jesus was the one who came to rescue us against these powers arrayed against us. Someone who's stronger than the captor needs to come and set the captives free. And Jesus is the one who defeats the deceiver and the kidnapper of humanity. Jesus is stronger than the one who holds humanity captive. Jesus refers to this mission against Satan when he was replying to accusations of the Pharisees in Mark chapter 3. So Jesus had been casting out demons. And the Pharisees, who don't want Jesus to have legitimate power, claim that Jesus is only able to cast out demons because he himself is inhabited by a demon. And so Jesus responds to this accusation. He says, well, how can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone who is stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. So what Jesus is saying at the end of that little story is that Jesus is the one who is stronger. He's saying, I'm not inhabited by a demon. I'm not working with the powers of darkness. In fact, I'm stronger than the powers of darkness. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the one who comes in and I tie up the strong man who is Satan and I plunder his house. And you wonder, okay, so what is the plunder he's taking? What is the treasure that Jesus is taking out of the, the house of the strong man? Well, the treasure is us. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, ties up our great spiritual enemy, robs him of his plunder, which is all of humanity. Remember how Paul phrases it in, in Colossians. God rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Now, how did Jesus defeat the power of sin, death, and Satan? Well, Jesus puts it like this. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let's come full circle. Back to being redeemed in Christ. We've gone on a journey here. I understand that. We've gone, we've gone pretty far. But now we're back to being redeemed in Christ. Focus on the last line of this verse. Jesus said, I get to give my life as a ransom for many. The Greek word for ransom here is lutron. And, and on its own, it, it just refers to a ransom payment. But lutron is also part of the Greek word for redeemed. Redeemed is a compound of two Greek words, apo and lutro, put together apolutrosis, literally meaning buying back from, repurchasing, winning back what was previously forfeit or lost. That's what redemption is. So our best understanding of the word redemption means to release from captivity through a payment of ransom. And the payment for our release was the shed blood of Jesus. This is a concept of redemption, buying us back from captivity. And this would have made a lot of sense in the first century church. When they would have read the word redemption, they would have had an instant image that came to their mind. Because the word redeemed was actually a fairly common, common word in Roman, secular Roman society because it was used whenever a slave was freed from slavery. 
Slavery is pretty common in the Roman Empire, but unlike slavery that would happen later in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, it wasn't motivated by, by skin color or anything like that. Most slavery in the Roman Empire was a form of indebtedness or you were a prisoner of war. So what would happen in the Roman Empire commonly is if you accumulated a lot of debt to a person that you couldn't pay off, you would become a slave to that person that you were in debt to until you could pay your debt off. And the sad reality is once you were a slave, it was pretty unlikely that you would pay that debt off. You probably wouldn't make enough. You'd probably be a slave forever. And in fact, your debt may transfer to your children, making them slaves as well. But every once in a while, someone might come along and pay off your debt. Or you might do such great work for your master that he in benevolence would say, I'm paying off your debt. You're free. And the word they would use when someone's debt was paid off was redeem. The debt has been paid. You are bought out. The contract is, is done. So someone would pay your debt, you'd receive a, you know, they might write it out on a legal document, they had legal documents in their own times, and it would say you were redeemed. And if you were redeemed, it meant you were no longer a slave because the debt had been paid. And in our sin, we were, as Paul says, captive to Satan and to death. They held claim on us because there was the debt of sin. But we could be bought back. The wages of sin is death. We couldn't pay it, but Jesus took our place and paid the price to set us free from captivity to sin, death, and Satan. And the other place in Scripture where we read this word ransom is when Peter is telling us what Christ did for us. He says, you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it wasn't paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he's been revealed for your sake. So this is what redemption in Christ means. It means the powers that surrounded us now have no claim on us. The debt of sin is paid. So redemption means sin no longer controls us. Death no longer holds us. Satan no longer condemns us. The price has been paid. Through faith, we are ransomed and brought back. We are made alive again in Christ. Now, even as we acknowledge the power and the reality of Satan, we cannot use the presence of evil beings in a broken and fallen world as an excuse for our own moral failings or sin. In our free will, we still follow the desires of our flesh. We still follow temptation. We still let sin gain mastery over us. We're still accountable for our actions. Scripture is clear that we were dead because of our trespasses and many sins. It's Ephesians 2.1. So in addition to redemption, we need forgiveness. So, and those two kind of go together. But I want you to remember as we talk about forgiveness that we are in the process of becoming who we are. We need to live out practically what has already taken place spiritually. To become free from all the ways sin has a grasp on us, it takes time, it takes some work. And the Apostle Paul says, you should consider yourselves dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. And so the reality that Paul is painting here when he's like, hey, here's a reminder for you. Don't give in to sin. Well, what he's saying is the reality is that even though we're new creations in Christ, although spiritually we've been you know, covered in, in Christ's righteousness, the reality is in this fallen world, in this life, we're still battling some of that sin junk that we carried in our hearts and in our souls. And so now we're on a journey with Jesus of getting that sin dealt with so that we can walk closer with Christ and experience the fullness of living in the Spirit. And the more we understand who we are in Christ, the better we're going to be at dealing with sin as it comes up in our lives. So we're redeemed. 
And Paul points out this redemption leads to the forgiveness of sins, and they're kind of interrelated. It, so it's great to know we're redeemed, but we also need to know we're forgiven, that God does not hold sin against us. If we were to read a really honest biography of our lives, a biography that listed all of the things you've ever done, all the things you've ever said, and all of the things you've ever thought, uh, you probably wouldn't be able to read it. If it was really honest and it captured even the things that you didn't remember, you probably wouldn't want to read that. I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to read mine. I don't want to read some of the things I've done or said. And I don't want those things to be held against me. And this is why we need forgiveness along with redemption. We need to have those sins erased from our lives, to be washed clean. So past sin is forgiven. Present sin is forgiven as well. See, when we sin, we've got to decide what we want to do with sin. What do we do with sin? What do we do with guilt? What do we do with shame? So one of the things you can do when you have sin or guilt or shame is you can simply deny it's an issue. You can deny whatever thing that happened, happened. You can bury sin so deep, this happens, you can bury sin so deep within your mind that you barely remember it. The problem with that is eventually it gains power. Sin that's not confessed, sin that, that you haven't brought before uh, Jesus to be forgiven, uh, if it's a major thing in your life, it, it starts to gain power. I think there's people I've talked with who, um, you know, God is clearly leading them into some new place of ministry. And just before they're about to take that step, something rises up within them to say, but remember who you are. Remember when you did this. Remember when you said that. And their sin rises up to condemn them. And I've had people kind of back away from things. And when you actually get to the bottom of it, it's because something that was in their past rose up to bring shame and condemnation. And it, and it made them feel less than worthy to do what God is calling them to do. So then we just need to bring it and say, you're forgiven. Jesus has forgiven you. His blood has washed you clean. So one of the things you can do is try and do that. You can try and stuff it really far down. Or you can blame someone else. You can say, well, I only did that thing. I only said that thing because so-and-so did this to me. Right? You can blame shift. I only did it because, that's what Adam did, right? Well, I only ate that apple because this woman you gave me, God, uh, you know, told me to. Or you can try and downplay your sin. You can say, well, it's not really that big of a deal. Lots of people have done this. In fact, I know people who've done worse things than me. Right? So you can try and downplay your sin. Or some people really do feel the weight of their sin intensely, and what they try and do is they try and punish themselves. They try and suffer in some way to try and atone for their own sin. It's like, okay, if I suffer enough, then I'll pay God back for what, what I did. That sounds maybe a little bit bizarre to some of you, but some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because I've talked with people who, who live like this. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to punish myself for the things that I've done. Or your final choice with sin is you can just be forgiven. You can just be forgiven. No denying it happened, no shifting the blame, no pretending it's not a big deal, no punishing yourself, just be forgiven. That's what we're promised. If we confess our sins to him, that is to Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Sin is not an insurmountable obstacle to faith. In fact, sin is the reason Jesus came to save us. He didn't come because we are righteous. He didn't say, man, you guys are so awesome. You guys are so good at doing everything right. You guys are so good at controlling sin. I'm just going to come and hang out with you guys. He didn't come because we're so righteous. Sin is the reason Jesus came to save us. He came because we could not be righteous without his intervention. And so if you are in Christ, here's the, the really key part of this. If you are in Christ... 
being forgiven is part of your identity in Christ. You don't need to do anything besides confess, repent, and accept the forgiveness that's given to you through Christ. And if there's one thing that hinders some Christians, it's that they know this intellectually, but they've never felt forgiven. But this is part of your identity in Christ. This is a promise that is a yes and amen promise. If you are in Christ, you are forgiven. That is your identity. You're forgiven everything you've ever done in the past. You're forgiven anything you might do in the future. Now, confession of sin is important in breaking the power of sin, but you are assured of being forgiven. Confession leads to forgiveness. So my prayer for you is that you would feel forgiveness. That the Holy Spirit would let this truth sink deep into your heart. No more living with lingering guilt and, and shame for things that, you've, that have been forgiven. Your identity in Christ assures you are forgiven, past, present, and future. And this redemption and forgiveness flows from God's unlimited grace. The last part of verse 7 states this. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. God is generous with grace. More than generous, he is lavish with his grace. His grace is extravagant. It has no limit. We tend to think that God's grace couldn't cover everybody or that, that maybe you know, we internalize our own sin as being really, really ugly. We go, well, God's grace couldn't cover me. Or sometimes we put limits on God's grace. And we're like, okay, grace got me in the door, but now I gotta work really hard to be good. And if I'm not, then I've abused his grace. But scripture actually says God knows how weak we are. He knows that we are only dust. And he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not deal harshly with us. God's grace is extravagant and lavish and unlimited. There are people who truly believe that their sin can't be forgiven, that God's grace couldn't cover them. But here's what you need to know. No matter how impoverished your soul is, God's riches of grace are greater still. God has more grace than you have sin. He has more forgiveness than you have indebtedness. And you cannot ever run the bill up too high. God's grace is never going to run out. It's a replenishing source that never stops flowing. This is the grace that is given to all who are in Christ. It's part of our identity. We receive the riches of God's grace, his redemption and his forgiveness. But it's offered to the whole world. If they had put their faith in Christ, they receive all of this. And this is the key to understanding grace. You didn't earn it. It's simply given to you upon acceptance of faith in Christ. And it never ceases. It never runs out. And it has no limit. I'm going to call the worship team up. They're going to lead us. But I just want to close like this. The reality is, is I know that there are some people in Christ who know these things intellectually. They know they're chosen. They know they're children of God. They know that they're redeemed and forgiven. But they don't know it in their soul, in their hearts. And they live each day in shame and guilt and in condemnation for things that were done in the past. For things that have been confessed and dealt with in the heavenly realms. Sin that was dealt with on the cross might still be plaguing your heart today. This is a really common thing. That sin that you engaged in the past still has hold on you today. Even though it shouldn't, because Christ has forgiven it. But you haven't felt that release. You haven't felt that forgiveness. It makes you wounded. And you walk with a limp because you're carrying this thing around that you don't have to carry because Christ said, I've taken that. I've washed you clean. I've, I've taken off those robes and I've put on a robe of, of righteousness and, and white linen and you are mine. And so just before we close in worship, I'm gonna pray for you and, and if you have some sort of <clears throat> condemnation that speaks to you, some sort of sin or guilt that, that was long in the past that you've repented of, that you've confessed, 
But you still, key moments in your life, it rises up and it says, but remember when. And it rises up to condemn you. I'm just going to pray over you. And if you want more prayer, you can come forward after and we'll have our prayer team assembled and we'd love to pray with you. But let me pray for you. Father, so often we don't understand the riches of your grace. So often your, your unmerited grace just doesn't make sense to us. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that for those who have past sin, that they've confessed, that they've repented of, that they've brought before you, but it still rises up to condemn and to shame. Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you break shame and condemnation today? Would your forgiveness flow into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds? Would we know deep within our soul that that it has been accomplished, that your blood has bought us back, that your blood has covered us in righteousness, that we are seated with you in the heavenly realms, that no one now can condemn us because you have come to save us. And so I pray for a release of your forgiveness over those who still feel condemned. And I pray that we would walk in freedom because of this. And I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.